we're going to turn back to Acts 16. Acts chapter 16. And we stayed in Acts chapter 15 a long time. I don't know how many weeks we were there, probably four or five weeks, but Acts chapter 16 is just as good, and we're going to stay here for a while too because there is a lot in Acts chapter 16. And so we're just kind of going through it verse by verse, just looking at what God is doing here and how God is going to do the same thing today during this time period. So just let me give you an idea of kind of what's been happening and just so you know where we're at in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are sent out on their first missionary journey, and they're sent out, of course, by the Holy Spirit, but the church, the sending church, which we still do today, 2,000 years later, was the church of Antioch. So the church of Antioch fasted for them, prayed for them, sent them out. And Paul and Barnabas, what they were, they were basically the leaders, the elders, the pastors of that church, but they left to go on mission. And so they go on mission. They go out with the power of the Holy Spirit, and they go primarily to the area of Galatia, which is Galatians in your Bible, and God does incredible things there. Then in Acts chapter 14, they come back to the church there in Antioch, and they give a report and say how God has worked through them because that's how God works. And so they stay there, and they preach, and they minister and tell stories for a while. And then what happens is there's controversy in the church and some people called Judaizers come in and start teaching false doctrine. And so there's kind of a debate there. They finally figure out that debate by going back to the apostles in Jerusalem, and they send a letter back to the church of Antioch, the first epistle in your Bible. And, of course, we talked a lot about that. But then something very important happens at the end of Acts chapter 15 because Paul and Barnabas, who had been together for many, many years and who had ministered together, and Barnabas was the one who discipled and mentored the Apostle Paul, and Paul would be not who he is without Barnabas. And so Barnabas was very influential in his life, but at the end of Acts chapter 15, they get into an argument, and it's not just a little debate, it's not just a discussion. The way the Bible in the Greek describes the argument they get into, it, it describes it like fighting with swords. They're fighting back and forth with swords. I mean, it is angry. And there are some words said and probably some things said that shouldn't have been said. And basically the whole argument was over who is going to go with them on their next missionary journey, the second missionary journey that they're about to leave for. And so Barnabas wants to take a young man named John Mark with them. And Paul says, no way that dude's going with us because the first missionary trip, John Mark went with them and he left them. He went home basically because he got homesick. And Paul said, that ain't happening again. And Barnabas disagreed. And I'm sure Barnabas said, look, a lot of people would have thrown you away, Paul, but I went and I found you in a place called Tarsus and I restored you and I basically brought you into the church so that you can do what you're doing through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Paul wasn't going to have any of it. And so they split, and Barnabas and John Mark go one way, Paul goes a different way, and he takes a young man there in the church of Antioch and the church of Jerusalem named Silas with him, and then in the beginning of Acts chapter 16, he meets another young man named Timothy, and of course we're going to see him next 50 years in Christianity, but Timothy, probably a teenager at that point, he also goes with Paul. And then another one joins up with them that we know is Luke. Now, it doesn't specifically say that in Acts chapter 16, but we know who writes the book of Acts. That is Luke. And the pronouns kind of change there in Acts chapter 16. And Luke starts saying, we, we go here, we do this. So we know Luke joins them and he's part of this journey. 
And so if you remember last week, one of the things we talked about is Paul pretty much knew where he was going. He knew that he wanted to get the gospel to Asia Minor, and so he was headed towards Turkey, that area, and going all the way to India is probably where he wanted to go, but he was going that direction. And we read specifically about how the Holy Spirit of God stopped him. Two different times, the Holy Spirit of God stopped him and wouldn't let him go. Okay, so here's a question I have for you. Why do you think the Holy Spirit of God stopped him from working, doing what he's called to do, which is to share the gospel? Why did the Holy Spirit of God stop him dead in his tracks and not let him go any further? Okay, I mean, that's, that's his. He wanted him to go somewhere else. Okay, he wanted him to go to Macedonia. Okay, do you think... That is the main reason why the Holy Spirit of God stopped him. And maybe it is. I don't know. I'm speculating here. But I don't think that is the main reason the Holy Spirit of God stopped him. Some people will say, well, God's plan at that point was for the gospel not to go there but to go here. Well, I don't believe that because I believe God's heart is for everyone to be saved. Why do I believe that? Well, the Bible says that specifically in several places. Go read 2 Peter 3, though. So... You're going to see in just a minute that the gospel gets to where Paul wanted to go. Paul just wasn't the one to get it there. Okay, so why did the Holy Spirit of God stop him? And he stopped him, dead in his tracks, twice. Paul wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he did. I mean, Paul, pretty stubborn, pig-headed. People in Macedonia were seeking. But I really do think there's something else in play here. Okay, And I want to read you why I think something else is in play here. And I want to remind you before I do, okay, the book of Acts is the Acts of who? The Holy Spirit of God, not the Acts of the Apostles. Some of yours will say that. Your Bible will head it that way. It ain't the Acts of the Apostles because they can't do Jack Diddley squat without the Holy Spirit of God. Promise that one. Okay? Promise it. Okay, so it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so I want to read you a verse, and then I want you to answer the question again, why did the Holy Spirit of God stop him? Okay, so you can just listen. But this is what Paul says later in his ministry, but this is what he says specifically later in his ministry in Ephesians 4. He says, And do not bring sorrow or do not grieve God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. Now, he goes on to tell you what grieves the Holy Spirit. Okay, listen to verse 31. Paul says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. Okay. Now, I'm just telling you, if you go read the end of Acts chapter 15, what do you think Paul did to Barnabas? Do you think there was any rage? Do you think there was any anger? What about harsh words? 
What about slander? What do you think Paul said to Silas and Timothy about Barnabas? I guarantee you it wasn't good. He wasn't saying, oh, I love Barnabas and we just had a disagreement and he went one way and I went the other. That probably ain't the way it happened, especially if you read the Greek in Acts chapter 15. They were fighting and there were harsh words and there was anger. And what does that always lead to? Bitterness every single time. Unforgiveness every single time. And when you have bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, what does it do? It grieves the Holy Spirit of God. It brings sorrow on the Holy Spirit of God. And what does that do? It stops the work of the Holy Spirit of God and His power. Does it not? Well, of course it does. You quench the Holy Spirit if you're grieving Him. Now, I mean, just think about that for just a moment. Okay, sometimes I think the way we think about God is that God is almost emotionless as He is in heaven. God has emotions, right? Can we grieve Him? Can we bring sorrow to Him? Can He love? Yeah. And He can judge, and He can get angry, and angry at sin. Go read Genesis. Okay, so God is sorrowful when? When we have an unforgiving spirit and when we have bitterness welled up in our soul. Now, why is he angry or why is he grieved by that? Okay, well, Jesus tells a pretty good parable about that in the book of Matthew, talking about the unforgiving servant and the unforgiving debtor, right? And so basically, this is what it boils down to. You who have been forgiven for so much won't forgive someone of so little. So let's just put it in perspective of Paul for a moment. Okay, what had Paul been forgiven of? I mean, he's killing Christians. And so what does Jesus have to say to him on the road to Damascus? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Is that what he says? No. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay. I mean, he had been forgiven a lot. Now, I don't know in here, I won't ask the question, but I doubt anybody in here has murdered other people, especially for following Christ. Okay, Paul did. Okay, so Paul had been forgiven great amounts. And now in his heart, he wasn't willing to forgive Barnabas of so little. A disagreement about someone going on a missionary journey with them. I mean, how stupid is that? Just think about how stupid that. But are we not the same way? Of course we are. Especially when it's close family or close friends. It is the dumbest things that divide us, is it not? Isn't it the same thing in churches? I mean, carpet or whatever it is. I mean, it's the stupidest things that divide us. And what does it do every single time? It shuts off the power of the Holy Spirit of God because it grieves Him. It quenches Him. So again, I'll ask you the question, why did the Holy Spirit of God stop the Apostle Paul squaring his tracks from going where he wanted to go, Asia Minor, and share the gospel? It's because he had to work on himself because he wasn't going to do jack in Asia Minor without the Holy Spirit of God, and he could have preached till he's blue in the face all day long, every day for the rest of his life, and it didn't matter because he grieved the Holy Spirit. That's what he did. 
Well, of course there's pride. Where, where does all this come from in the first place anyway? It comes from pride. It's the, pride's the root of all sin. And so I'm just telling you, I believe Paul had some work to do, and we don't know how long this time period was where he's trying to get to Asia Minor. But I just believe with all my heart there, the Holy Spirit had to stop him. And I think later on, when Paul writes Ephesians chapter 4, some of this comes into play with what happened to him and Barnabas. Because I'm telling you, what he says there is exactly what happened to him in that fight. But the Holy Spirit of God did stop him. And the Holy Spirit of God changed his mind and turned him around after he got right with God. So let's start reading in Acts 16 anyway and see what happened after this. Look at verse 9. It says, That night Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia in northern Greece. That's what Macedonia is, northern Greece. He was standing there pleading with him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Now, obviously, I'm pretty sure Paul got right with the Holy Spirit of God. And somehow he got rid of all the rage and all the anger and all the bitterness and harshness, and he started the process of forgiving Barnabas. And how do we know? Because now the Holy Spirit of God's speaking to him again, and he's speaking specifically in a vision to him. And in this vision, he sees a man in Macedonia pleading with him to come. Now, I know here in the States, we don't have a lot of people talking about visions. But I'm telling you, in other parts of the world, there are places where visions happen all the time, specifically in Muslim countries. If you were here Sunday morning, Brighton was talking about spending time this summer as missionary in Southeast Asia and talked about a young man that had a vision, and he saw a man in white saying, come to me. And then Brighton was there to tell him about Jesus, and he still wouldn't believe. But all over the world, people have visions. And so Paul had this vision, and so it changed his direction so that he goes not towards Asia Minor, but towards Greece, and there they share the gospel. So keep reading, verse 11. This is what happened, and this is how we know Luke's with them, because what does it say there? We boarded a boat in Torres. Okay, so we know Luke's with them now, and so he's with them, and he's sailing with them. And what they did is they sailed straight across to the island of Samarothes, and the next day we landed in Neapolis. Now, Neapolis there, all that is is basically the seaport of Philippi. So it's the port city of Philippi, and it goes on to tell you what Philippi is. From there, we reach Philippi, a major city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. Okay, before we go on, I just want to talk about this a second because you need to know this to understand really the rest of the Bible, but especially the rest of the book of Acts. Okay, just so you know a little bit about Philippi and how important it was from a Roman aspect, Macedonia was governed by or ruled by Philip II. And why do you think Philippi is named what it is? It's named after him. Okay, do you know who the son of Philip II is or was? Alexander the Great. Okay, so if you know anything about history... A lot happened through Alexander the Great in this part of the world because that's where he's from. And so Philippi is named after his dad, Philip II. 
Now, a major thing you need to see here and what it says there in verse 12 is it says that Philippi or Macedonia, basically Greece, the whole area of Greece, is a Roman colony. Okay, that's the first time it says that about a place in the Bible. And that is very important because up until this point, everywhere we've read about is really not a Roman colony. It is basically a stronghold of Rome. Okay, think about Jerusalem and think about everything that led up even while Jesus was there. We know Rome had people there. They had soldiers there as a contingent to basically say this is our property. We own this now because we conquered it. But did Roman culture or influence reach Jerusalem? I mean, they still went to the temple to worship. It was still a Jewish community. They were just ruled by Rome. And they had soldiers there that would rule them. And like Pontius Pilate, he would only come in like one or two times a year during big festivals. He didn't live there. So there was not Roman influence over the city. Okay, does that make sense? But you go to Philippi, this is Rome. I mean, this is a Roman colony. This has not got any Judaism influence over it whatsoever. This is Rome culturally, language, trade, everything. This is Rome, okay? Because Rome spread out a long way. And we know their empire went a long way, but really their reach from a cultural perspective didn't go that far. It didn't even go to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? Okay, and that's going to become very important the rest of Paul's ministry. And it's even going to become important here in Acts chapter 16. So it's a Roman colony. And so now what we're going to start seeing here in verse 13 is we're going to start seeing really three stories in Acts chapter 16, and they're all great, great stories. So look there at verse 13. This is what the Bible says. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. Okay, now remember last week we talked about Paul's missional strategy. This was his missional strategy wherever he went. On the Sabbath, now why would he do this on the Sabbath? Because that's when people, Jews, met to worship God, right? And so they would always gather in the synagogue to worship God. And so what the Apostle Paul would do is wherever he would go, he would find the local synagogue and he would go there. And because he was a Pharisee, he could preach there. And remember, that's why he had to get Timothy circumcised earlier in Acts chapter 16 so that he could be a part of that ministry. So this was his plan. This was his only plan. But guess where this plan don't work? In Rome. Because there are no Jews there. Now, I know we think synagogue, we think a building, we think of a church, we think of a place, kind of like if I said church in Alabama, we think somewhere like this, right? Well, a synagogue, the word just means gathering is all it means. So anywhere where there were 10 Jewish men in a city or in an area, that's what constituted a synagogue. 10 Jewish men could gather and it could be a synagogue. Okay, but now very specifically here, where does it say that they go? Where does Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke go on Sabbath? They don't go to a building, really. Where do they go? They go to the river because they thought that's where the people would meet. Now, why do you think they thought that? That's where they usually go, but why is that where they usually went? 
That's where they do the laundry? Well, I don't know if that's why the men would go down there to worship God. Well, here, I'll, let me tell you why, just so you'll never get it. So, okay. We won't do 30 questions on this one. But it goes back to Babylon, okay? Now, what happened when all the Jews were taken out of their land and taken into captivity in Babylon? Did they have a temple to worship at? Did they have a place to worship? No, they didn't have nothing. I mean, they're slaves, okay? They're slaves. Okay, listen to what Psalm 137 says. Starts out in verse 1. Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. Why are they thinking of Jerusalem? Because that's where the temple, that's where God dwells. That's why they thought about it. Verse 2. We put away our harps, hanging them on branches of poplar trees, for our captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing to us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of our Lord while in a pagan land? So what do you think they would do on the riverbank? They would sing. They would worship. That's where they met with God. That was the synagogue. So hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul goes into a city that's really a foreign land, right? It's not Jerusalem. It's not a place where they had buildings or temples to go worship. And so how did he know where the Jews would be to worship? Because that's where they worshiped from then on if they didn't have a building or a place to worship. That was their synagogue or their gathering place was the riverbank. And so that's why Paul goes to the river to find the synagogue so he could have what he always does and tell them about Jesus while he's there. The only problem is guess wasn't what wasn't there. There were no Jewish men there. There was no synagogue there. Because remember, this is a Roman colony. And so guess what Paul's going to have to do? He's going to have to change everything he knows. His whole missional strategy is going to get turned up on side its head just like that. And if you ever go on a mission trip, one of the things you will learn before you learn anything else is the one word you need to know on a mission trip is flexibility. Because you never know what's going to happen on a mission trip, and you better be flexible, and you better not be stuck in your ways, or you are in trouble. And so the Apostle Paul found that out really, really quick here. And so this is what happens on the riverbank. He says, we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down, but we spoke with some women who had gathered there. So there were no men. There were no Jewish men. And these weren't Jewish women. They were just down at the riverbank. And what were they there to do? Verse 14. One of them was Lydia from Thyatira. Hold on to that for a minute. I'm going to come back to that. She was a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted what Paul was saying. Okay, now the Bible says there that she worshipped God. Now what God do you think she worshipped? I mean, we don't know. She's not Jewish, okay? So she's not married because if she was married, what would be mentioned here? Her name, her husband, that's how they were referred to in those days. So she's single, What's she worshiping? Well, I, I mean, in my mind, I think this is very similar to Cornelius. Okay? Cornelius feared God. 
He worshiped God. He just didn't know what God to worship, right? He was a seeker of God. He was a seeker of truth. And I think that's exactly what Lydia was. And so she's at the riverbank for some reason, and she's there to worship God, even though she really doesn't know what she's worshiping. So what does the Apostle Paul do? Well, this might be a pretty good person to share Jesus with, right? It's not that difficult. That's who you find and you share Jesus with, somebody seeking God. And that's what he did. And I'm telling you, this is incredibly important. And the way we know that is because we know where she lived or where she's from. Where is she from? She's not from Philippi. She's there on business. She's a businesswoman, okay? She is a very successful businesswoman. And the way we know that is because she's a seller of expensive or purple cloth. Why is purple cloth expensive? It's because of the dye. Okay, I can look across this room right now, and there are a lot of colors in this room, right? So we got green, we got crimson, we got red, we got orange. We got all kinds of colors. Well, that wasn't the way it was in Paul's day. Do you know what color everybody wore in Paul's day? Some dreary, white, brown, because they didn't dye their clothing because it was very, very expensive. So we know what the color purple represented in that day. We know that because of Jesus. When he was scourged, what did they put upon his back? They draped across his back what? A purple cloth or a purple gar- some garment that had been disrobed. But what did that signify? It's the color of royalty. Okay, so purple was very expensive because what they had to do in this day is the only way they could get purple dye is they would find a shellfish, a certain shellfish, and they would have to crush up this shellfish to get just a little bit of purple dye. So it took forever to dye a garment in purple. But somehow Lydia had this business, and she had a lot of money. But what's important is where she's from, Thyatira. Okay, now earlier I told you that I didn't believe God wanted to stop the gospel from going to Asia Minor. That's where Paul wanted to go when the Holy Spirit of God stopped him. Do you know where Thyatira is? It's Asia Minor. Do you know the book of Revelation? There are seven churches of where mentioned in Revelation. Jesus speaks to them. Asia Minor. And guess what one of the churches is? Thyatira. Okay, so does the gospel get to Thyatira, and is there a church established? Yeah, how do you think the gospel gets to Thyatira and the church is established? Lydia. I mean, Lydia is a missionary there. So she lives there. She goes back and forth to places where she sells her purple cloth. So did God want to get the gospel to Asia Minor? Yeah. Paul just wasn't the one to do it. Why? Because his heart was filled with bitterness and rage and anger and unforgiveness and all this stuff. But did God work? Can God do more than one thing at once? Yeah, at the same time, yeah, he can do a lot of things at the same time, right? And so not only can he work on your heart, and not only can he get you right, but he can save an entire province if he wants to through it. And that's what he did here through this lady named Lydia. And if you go read the book of Philippians, she's pretty important, okay? She's pretty important. But just keep reading here because she listened to what the Apostle Paul said and she accepted what she, he said about Jesus. Look at verse 15. She and her household were baptized. Okay, now that's important because I think she's single. I'm pretty sure she's single, but she has a household. Who's her household? It would be servants. It would be people that work for her. So that's her household. That's how wealthy she is. She has servants. So she and her household are baptized, and this is what she does. And she asks us to be her guests. This is how she asks. She's pretty clever. 
If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, then come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. So she basically didn't give them a choice. So if you believe I'm a believer, you got to come stay at my house. And if what basically what does that infer? If you don't come stay at my house, you don't believe I really believed. And so what's Paul do? They go stay at her house. Now, obviously, she had a pretty good-sized house. She had servants. She had a household. But now she's got four dudes that have to come stay with her. Remember, this is Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Luke. Okay? And she is going to care for them. She is going to lodge them. She is going to feed them. And really, this is one of the first times, from a missional aspect anyway, we see using the gift of hospitality as a missional strategy. Okay, now let's think about this just from your perspective for a moment. I would be willing to bet for almost every person in this room, the most expensive item you have ever owned in your life is a house. That's true for me by far, okay? And I think that's true for most of us. Okay, what is the one thing we don't use for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Most time, our house. And it's the most expensive thing we got. So why aren't we opening that up, and why aren't we using it like Lydia for the gospel of Jesus Christ? She wants Paul to stay in the area where she is and continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what she wants. And what does Paul do? That's what he does. We read about it later in the book of Acts. And so she uses her house to make that possible. How many times do we do that? Very rarely. But I'm telling you, it's a great missional strategy. Do you know how many international students we have just a few miles down the road? Thousands of them. Thousands of them from all over the world. All over the world. And you know what they would just love? For someone to open their house and just have them over for dinner so they can meet someone from America or talk to someone from America. Because rarely does that happen. Rarely does that happen. Hopefully you got an email this week from Scott. He sent out an email about Tuscaloosa International Friends. They will line that up for you if you'll just go fill out an application. We still have right now in, at the university over 70 international students that don't have a family that will do that for them. 70 of them. And really, it is very simple. You just build a relationship with them. You invite them for supper. You invite them to church. You take them to a restaurant. The best thing to do is when it gets Christmas time or Thanksgiving time, let them come be a part of your Thanksgiving. And at Christmas, guess what? It's an incredible op way and opportunity to share the gospel and share the story of Jesus. Use your home for the gospel. It's the most expensive thing you got. How much time and money and investment you put in that stupid thing? Use it for the glory of God. Oh, my gosh. That's what Lydia did. Do what? Well, I didn't say everything's easy. <laughs> yeah, maybe be careful who you invite. That was your own fault, but. <laughs> uh, well, keep reading, though, because the story gets even better. Look at verse 16. One day, as we were going down to the place of prayer, so they're doing the same thing, going back to the riverbank, we met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. 
Okay, let's talk about this for a second because this is important. Okay, so here's this little girl, and she obviously has a spirit. Is this the Holy Spirit? No, no it's lowercase s there, so it's a demon. It's demonic activity here. But what does this demon allow her to do? Make money by telling fortunes or telling the future. Okay, here's a great question for you. Can demons tell the future? No. Can Satan tell the future? Now, can he know the future? Well, yeah, he can read the Bible just like you can. Okay, so he can know the future. But can they tell the future? Can they tell me before I say it what I'm about to say? No. Okay. But obviously this girl had some power because her masters were making a lot of money off of her. Okay, now this is still prevalent in our day, right? I mean, I, I can't believe this, but I saw a commercial not that long ago for another call, call a psychic, or you really now, it's not 1-800-PSYCHIC, but you get online with a psychic and they'll do your reading online like a Zoom call. Okay, so this is still thousands of years later still happening. Okay, so someone that's controlled by a spirit or a demon and can tell future or tell fortunes, what are they doing? Do you know what they're doing? That, well, they're definitely deceiving you. But now here's the thing about Satan, this thing about demonic activity. They're very wise, and they're very perceptive, and they probably know you as well as you know yourself. Okay, so do you know what they do, though? Whenever you hear anybody telling the future or telling fortunes, this is all, I'm telling you this is all they do. They just tell you what you want to hear. That's all they do. They tell you what you want to hear. That's it. And you know what? It works every time. And you fall for it. And you know what? Even believers fall for it. Christians fall for it. In the last days, what are they going to do? They're going to look for preachers who will do the same thing, right? That's what the Bible says. They're going to look for preachers who will tell them anything their itching ear wants to hear. And guess what? They're going to find them. And guess what else? Some of those dudes are going to be controlled by a spirit, by a demon. We do have some of those today. We have them all over. But this ain't new. And I'm telling you, as we get closer and closer to the end, to the return of Christ, you're going to see this more and more and more. So pay attention to this little girl. Pay attention. Because I'm telling you it's real. I've told you stories about demonic activity. And you don't have to go places like Haiti or Ecuador to find it. It's all around us. And so be very discerning and be very close to God so that you know what you hear is His voice and not someone else's. And how do you know that? This is the only way you know that. Because I'm telling you, you would rather hear what you want to hear than truth, right? I have a lot of people that will come to me for counseling one time, and you know why they only come one time? Because they don't like what i got to say. And I'm, I'm just, I'm being honest. Because why do most people go to counseling? So they can justify and rationalize their sin. That's why they go to counseling, because they want to hear what they want to hear. And if you speak truth into their life... They'll run from you like a scalded dog. They don't like it. Same is true in church, by the way. 
okay? But there's a lot of things you're going to hear that you need to hear that you might not like, right? It happens to me all the time when I read God's Word. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. So when it ruffles your feathers, suck it up, buttercup. I don't care. Because God has called me to speak truth. And the only way I know to do that is to preach the Word of God and to stay as close to it as I can. And that's all we got. Amen? That's all we need. Okay. Thank you.